It's the 15th of March, 44 BC. It's a warm spring day in ancient Rome. Perched on the banks of the Tiber, the sprawling marble metropolis gleams in the sunlight. Inside the grandiose theatre of Pompey, two men make their way through the hallways to attend an important senatorial meeting. The older of the two men, a man with thinning hair and piercing grey eyes, leads the way. He is, to put it mildly, a very successful man. He'd risen through the ranks of the political hierarchy and managed to attain an unassailable position in Roman politics. Yet, despite his impressive list of achievements, he feels somewhat distracted by the previous events of the day. That morning, his wife had pleaded with him not to attend the meeting. She had dreamt that should he leave, he would suffer a terrible fate. This wasn't the first warning he had received either. An Etruscan soothsayer had given him a similar warning of a great danger to his life, one which would reveal itself on the Ides of March. Just now, he had spotted her on his way to the Senate and called out gloatingly that today was the Ides and he was alive and well. Her reply unnerved him. Aye, the Ides have come, but they are not yet gone. Despite his reservations, he had chosen to continue on to the Senate. Perhaps this is unsurprising, for Julius Caesar was not a man easily dissuaded once he had made up his mind. Caesar reached the meeting hall. The man accompanying him, Mark Antony, made to enter with Caesar, but was engaged in conversation by a senator. Antony hung back as Caesar continued on into the room. Historical accounts of that day's events vary, but the most famous and probably the most accurate comes from the Roman historian Suetonius. His account reads as follows. As he took his seat, the conspirators gathered around him as if to pay their respects, and straightway, Tilius Kimber, who had assumed a lead, came nearer as though to ask something. When Caesar with a gesture put him off to another time, Kimber caught his toga by both shoulders. As Caesar cried, Why, this is violence! One of the caskers stabbed him from one side, just below the throat. Caesar caught Casca's arm and ran it through with his stylus, but as he tried to leap to his feet, he was stopped by another wound. When he saw that he was beset on every side by drawn daggers, he muffled his head in his robe and at the same time drew down its lap to his feet with his left hand in order to fall more decently, with the lower part of his body also covered. And in this wise he was stabbed with three and twenty wounds, uttering not a word, but merely a groan at the first stroke. Though some have written that when Marcus Brutus rushed at him, he said in Greek, You too, my child? All the conspirators made off, and he lay there lifeless for some time, until finally three common slaves put him on a litter and carried him home, with one arm hanging down. Today is the 15th of March, one of the many, many anniversaries since the famous assassination of Julius Caesar on the Ides of March. Now, even if you know nothing of ancient history, Chances are the name Julius Caesar rings a bell for most of you. Living over 2,000 years ago, his legacy has lived on throughout the ages, 
He was a titan of Roman politics, an incredibly gifted military commander and contributed greatly to the expansion of Rome's territory and cultural influence. Despite his successes, he also played a key role in bringing about the end of the Roman Republic, only to be replaced with the rise of the Empire. So, today we'll be imagining an alternate timeline in which Julius Caesar wasn't assassinated. You may be wondering, how would Rome have fared had Caesar survived and continued to rule? How would his survival shape the rivalries and the borders of the ancient world? And how would all this affect the future of the Republic? All these questions and more will be explored in the following episode. My name's Tom DeLaghi, and you're listening to What If Julius Caesar Was Never Assassinated on another episode of This Is Not History. Before we can imagine a world in which Julius Caesar wasn't assassinated, here's some historical context as to what actually happened. Let's go back to way before his time, to the founding of Rome. As the myth goes, the city-state of Rome was founded in 753 BC by two brothers, Romulus and Remus. The boys were abandoned as children and raised by a she-wolf. They chose to build a new settlement on the banks of the Tiber River, but after a dispute over who would rule as king, Romulus killed Remus and bestowed his name upon the city. Rome was born. The following years saw Rome being ruled by a succession of kings, steadily expanding and incorporating nearby lands. This came to an end in 509 BC, when the tyrant king Tarquinius was overthrown in a revolution. Rome became what was known as a res publica. Translated from Latin as the public thing, this is where the word republic is derived. A new system of governance was designed in order to make sure that no one individual could attain absolute power ever again. With this in mind, the role of the king was replaced with that of a consul. Two consuls would rule for a year simultaneously and had the power to appoint senators as well as preside over the army. Consuls were nominated by the senators, who controlled things like Rome's finances, administration and foreign policy. This system of government certainly wouldn't pass for a democracy by today's standards, but Rome's citizens enjoyed many more freedoms relative to other societies in that era. Over time, the fear of a king ever returning to overthrow the Republic became a deeply ingrained part of Rome's national psyche. Republicanism became a core part of Roman identity, much like, let's say, the notion of freedom or individual liberty is to the American identity today. Anyway, Rome's system of government contributed largely to its success over the following centuries, as it allowed for the society to function smoothly. Since its founding, a distinct Roman culture had developed. Individuals were motivated by two ideas, known as dignitas and gloria. Dignitas was the measure of a person's status in the society and the amount of respect their family name commanded. The best way you could improve your dignitas was by acquiring gloria, meaning being victorious in military conquest. 
these two ideals were a recipe for creating one of the most militaristic societies in human history. Rome began expanding, warring with its neighbours and annexing their territory. By the 3rd century BC, Rome had expanded into most of the Italian peninsula. After the Punic Wars, the Republic wiped out their Carthaginian enemies and opened the path for Rome to ascend to become the hegemonic military force in the Mediterranean. By 146 BC, Rome had expanded further, controlling Sicily, Sardinia, Corsica, parts of Hispania, the Adriatic coast, Greece and parts of North Africa. Despite the Republic's rapid territorial expansion, this led to some major issues developing in Roman society. A popular interpretation of events is that the Senate had become morally bankrupt, with its members increasingly looking to what benefited their own interests as Rome's power grew, thus alienating the people. This dissatisfaction paved the way for charismatic individuals to take advantage of the people's discontent. Which leaves us around the time that a certain Caesar arrives on the scene. Gaius Julius Caesar was born in 100 BC into the Gens Julia family. In 85 BC, his father passes away suddenly. At just 16, Caesar becomes the head of the family. After his family picked the losing side of a Roman civil war, the victor sought to hunt down any of his former enemy's associates, meaning Caesar had to go into hiding. A deal was eventually brokered by his family, which allowed him to resurface, and fortunately he was effectively forced to start from square one, as part of the deal was that his family inheritance was to be stripped from him. With this newly diminished status, the ambitious Caesar becomes determined to recapture his family's dignitas, and the best way to do that was by joining the Roman army. This was the beginning of his military career. Caesar was soon shipped off and was involved in various battles across the eastern Mediterranean. After the siege of Mytilene, he was decorated for his conduct, receiving the civic crown. After completing his stint in the legions, he returns home to begin a career as a lawyer. He begins garnering a reputation for his eloquent oratory skills in court. He manages to prosecute several corrupt officials, which contributes to this man of the people image he begins to cultivate amongst common Romans. He successfully holds numerous political offices over the following years, gradually working his way up the ladder of power. He becomes an aedile, which is a sort of public works administrator in 65 BC. He orders the repairs of Roman roads and infrastructure, but the position also gives him control over arranging Rome's annual sporting festivals. Caesar spends lavishly and uses the position to grow his popularity amongst the public. Attempting to advance his position, Caesar approaches two of the most influential figures in Roman politics, Marcus Licinius Crassus and Pompey Magnus. Crassus is the richest man in Rome, and Pompey was one of, if not the greatest, military tactician in its history. These men were bitter rivals, which had created a stalemate in the Senate, but Caesar saw potential to be exploited from this situation. In 60 BC, Caesar made Crassus and Pompey a compelling offer. He pointed out to them that all three of them had ambitions that could only be achieved through cooperation. Crassus wanted the Senate to grant various tax cuts, 
Pompey wanted the Senate to grant his soldiers land as payment for their service, and Caesar wanted the top job. Caesar said that if they supported his election bid to become consul, he would ensure their legislation would pass. With this secret pact agreed upon, the first triumvirate is born, the most powerful political alliance to ever exist in Roman history. With Crassus and Pompey's support, Caesar wins and becomes a Roman consul in 59 BC. Now it was time for Caesar to hold up his end of the bargain. To ensure his fellow triumvirs legislation passed, he resorts to heavy-handed tactics, ordering attacks to be carried out against senators who oppose him. This pays off initially, and both of Caesar's partners get their bills passed. Caesar's time in office serves him well. He often outshines his co-consul, his tenure jokingly being referred to as the consulship of Julius and Caesar. He accrues vast amounts of wealth and influence during this period. He hosts parties for the Roman aristocracy and marries a young noblewoman called Calpurnia, although this doesn't stop him from having extramarital affairs, as was common for men in Roman society. He begins an affair with a woman named Servilia and becomes close with her son, a young politician of the name Marcus Junius Brutus. You're going to want to remember that name. So, Caesar had finally achieved what he'd been seeking his entire life. He'd reached the highest level of political office in the Roman Republic. But this doesn't last forever. The tough measures Caesar took, while effective, meant he developed a negative reputation as a strongman which poses an issue for Pompey and Crassus. As far as they saw it, they had gotten all the use they could out of Caesar. He'd passed their bills, but now he was stirring up discontent with the Senate, he was making the other two look bad. Once Caesar's consulship expired, Pompey and Crassus decided it best to send him out of Rome. With great reluctance, in 58 BC, Caesar took up a governorship in a province in northern Italy. For a man with as much ambition as Caesar, he saw this as a massive step down. He had thought his consulship was just the beginning of his political career, and now it was looking dangerously on the brink. But he wasn't about to let it slip away that easily. The land to the north of the Republic's territory which Caesar's province bordered was known as Gaul. Gaul comprises the modern-day territory of France and Belgium, as well as bits of Germany and Switzerland, and was made up of disunified Celtic tribes and settlements. Caesar knew that by using his province as a training ground, he could raise an army and launch an invasion of Gaul. Not only would this military victory bring him gloria, the fortune and territory he would acquire for Rome would make him exceptionally popular with the people. The only problem was that embarking on military conquest without the Senate's approval was a crime. This was a massive gamble, and the stakes were high. Despite this, in 58 BC, Caesar marches his legions north and invades Gaul, marking a pivotal moment in history and the beginning of eight years of brutal military conquest. During this campaign, he directs his troops brilliantly through vicious battles and sieges, showcasing just how good of a general he really was. Famously, he uses divide and conquer tactics, never fighting a united enemy, just taking over piece by piece. Eventually, 
Caesar succeeds in capitulating the Gaulish tribes. Out of a total population of 3 million people, Caesar slaughters one third and sells another third into slavery. Needless to say, these ratios are utterly apocalyptic for the Celts. As word reaches Rome of the impressive feat Caesar's managing to accomplish, his popularity at home skyrockets with Roman jingoism riding high. The Senate, however, are nervous. By 54 BC, Crassus and Pompey are beginning to look at what Caesar's doing and realise that sending him away was a massive mistake. He's becoming too popular and too powerful. Crassus, the only one of the triumvirs without a big military conquest under his belt, sets sail for the east and attempts to conquer Parthia. This fails disastrously. At the Battle of Carae, his army is wiped out and Crassus is executed by the Parthians, who pour molten gold down his throat. Of the triumvirate, this leaves just Caesar and Pompey left alive, marking the crumbling of their alliance. Moving to secure his position, Pompey wins the Roman consulship and strengthens his ties to the Senate. By 50 BC, all Gaulish lands were incorporated into the Republic and becomes the single largest territorial expansion in Roman history. Pompey recognises that Caesar has overtaken him in power since the conquest of Gaul. He, along with the Senate, vote to strip Caesar of his command and orders him back to Rome to stand trial for illegally raising an army without the Senate's permission. Brutus, despite his close ties with Caesar, whom he sees as a father figure, decides to side with Pompey. Caesar receives this ultimatum and begins marching his armies back to Rome. He reaches the Rubicon River, the symbolic boundary outlining Rome itself. If Caesar were to cross it, in the eyes of the law, he would be considered an invading army, thus starting a civil war. In 49 BC, Caesar crosses the Rubicon. This is a turning point in Roman history and marks the beginning of a Roman civil war. The forces of Julius Caesar versus the forces of Pompey Magnus, two of the greatest generals in Roman history. This war lasts for years. Pompey and the Senate abandon Rome, leaving the city without a functioning government. Caesar doesn't enter Rome, instead chasing Pompey out of Italy into neighbouring Greece. Here, Caesar wins a major victory against his enemy. Brutus surrenders to Caesar's forces, but Caesar decides to show him clemency and pardons the boy. Pompey, on the other hand, manages to escape from Caesar's clutches and flees to Egypt. At this time, Egypt was a rich and powerful North African kingdom. Pompey had contacts there from whom he was hoping to receive help in defeating Caesar's armies. Led by 14-year-old Pharaoh Ptolemy XIII, they too were embroiled in their own civil war, waged against his sister and wife, Cleopatra VII. Caesar tracked his enemy down to Egypt, he sends his right-hand man, Mark Antony, back to Rome to restore order there, while he himself sets sail for the port of Alexandria. Caesar reaches the court of the boy king, where Pompey's severed head is presented to Caesar on a platter. 
Caesar recoils and reportedly weeps at the sight of this. Pompey may have been his enemy, but he had still been one of the greatest Roman commanders who had ever lived. He deserved more respect than meeting his end at the hands of a child. In return for the supposed favour he had just done him, the pharaoh commanded Caesar to deploy his legions and help him win in their civil war. Caesar refused, attempting to arbitrate the dispute between the siblings peacefully. Ptolemy then has Caesar and his men placed under siege in Alexandria. During the siege, Cleopatra secretly manages to make her way into the besieged Caesar's quarters. She convinces Caesar to join forces with her armies and to help her overthrow her brother. Not long after, the two become lovers. Cleopatra saw Caesar as her best hope for securing her position on the throne of Egypt, but there also seems to have been a genuine attraction to one another. They clearly got along very well. Anyway, the siege is eventually broken in 47 BC, when Caesar's reinforcements arrive. Another battle is fought, where the king's army is routed, and Ptolemy himself drowns in the Nile while attempting to flee by boat. Caesar and Cleopatra's forces were left victorious, and she becomes the remaining pharaoh of Egypt. In 47 BC, Caesar defeats an opportunistic kingdom in the east after they attempted to take advantage of Rome's civil war. Their defeat came so easily at the hand of his legions. Caesar described his time there as Vini Vini Vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. At the beginning of 46 BC, he then shoots off back to Africa to annihilate the remnants of Pompey's supporters. While all this is going on, things were beginning to take a turn for the worse back in Rome. I mentioned previously how Caesar had sent his right-hand man, Mark Antony, to return to Rome to restore order. Well, to put it bluntly, he wasn't really doing a very good job. Without a functioning senate, the population was becoming restless. Food wasn't being distributed properly to the people. Antony, a man who had no prior experience to political governance, opted to use force to quell the riots and protests, resulting in the deaths of innocent civilians. In the September of 45 BC, Caesar returned to Rome for the first time since he was kicked out by Crassus and Pompey. He saw the Republic as fundamentally broken. The Senate had become too corrupt, too self-serving. The institutions that had served Rome well in centuries past had become inadequate, thanks to all the rapid territorial expansion. In fact, things had gotten so bad in his absence that the calendar had fallen out of whack. People literally did not know what day it was. Caesar set about making his reforms. He drafted a new Roman constitution, which created a more centralised government in Rome that could act more decisively. He initiated a mass mobilisation campaign for the army in preparation for future campaigns. A new calendar was devised, allowing for a more accurate schedule for planting crops. Today, we call it the Julian calendar. He passes a law which allows him to appoint all magistrates, all consuls and tribunes. This, according to his critics, made all new appointees personally loyal to Caesar, as opposed to the Senate or the people. On top of all this flurry of activity, Cleopatra drops a bombshell on Roman politics when she reveals that during their time together in Egypt, she and Caesar had had a baby together. Named Ptolemy Caesarian, he was the heir to Cleopatra's throne in Egypt. 
Now, the notion that the head of a Roman Republic could begin a dynastic lineage in a foreign kingdom was just so far removed from what was acceptable in Rome, it raised genuine concerns that Caesar was trying to advance his power into the realm of monarchy. Now, as much as Caesar's reforms look to create a brand new Roman system, he sees the value of looking into the past for guidance. In times of exceptional crisis, the Senate had the power to bestow the title of dictator onto an individual, holding this temporary position of total authority over Roman affairs, usually for six months. They would use these powers to save the Republic and then give them up after a crisis was averted. Caesar decided to revive this position. After he had dealt the decisive defeat to Pompey's army, Caesar was appointed dictator. He held the position for 11 days to ensure his second bid for consul was successful before giving up his power. Then again, while Caesar was in Egypt, he was appointed to the office of dictator for the term of one year. For a third time in 46 BC, as he was about to crush the remainders of Pompey's army in Africa, Julius Caesar was appointed dictator for the next 10 years. You can see why Caesar's opponents were becoming more and more nervous as to just how far he would go to extend his term in office. Then, in early 44 BC, Julius Caesar is made dictator in pituitum, dictator for life. For a large portion of the senators, it just confirmed many of their worst fears. Caesar had succeeded in giving himself powers to a tyrannical degree. In all but name, Julius Caesar had made himself king. For the good of the Republic, they could not allow him to continue. As many as 60 senators began conspiring, with the ringleaders being Cassius, Decimus and Brutus. Their minds turned to ending Caesar once and for all. The plotters, known as liberators, planned to strike on the 15th of March 44 BC better known as the Ides of March. The liberators gathered on the Senate floor and awaited Caesar's arrival at their meeting. As he entered, senators begin to gather around him. Unbeknownst to him, they begin to unsheathe daggers from beneath their togas. It's here, on this day, Julius Caesar is killed, having been stabbed 23 times. His death is a major shock to the Republic with his body being paraded through the streets of Rome as people come out to mourn. In the aftermath of Caesar's murder, the plotters believe they have destroyed the greatest threat to the Republic. They attempt to restore order, but their actions result in a power vacuum emerging at the top of the Roman political hierarchy, thanks to Caesar's consolidation of power. The carnage unleashed after Caesar's death leads Mark Antony to hunt down his assassins. Brutus kills himself rather than be captured. Eventually, Antony's allies in Rome turn against him and he's forced to flee abroad and joins forces with Cleopatra. When Roman armies bear down on Egypt, they both kill themselves. Caesarian, Cleopatra and Caesar's son, rules for just two weeks before he too is killed at age 17. After the years of chaos and war which engulfed the Republic, 
a man rises to the forefront of Roman politics. Gaius Octavius, Caesar's grandnephew, picks up the mantle of Caesar Augustus. Finally, in 27 BC, the Roman Republic is reorganised into the Roman Empire, with Augustus as its first emperor, ruling for the next 40 years. So, that's a super simplified overview of Caesar's life. But what if it didn't end in assassination? What if Caesar survived the Ides of March? Let's explore what could have been. So, what would need to happen differently in this scenario for Caesar to survive the Ides of March? I think there are a few ways that we could go with this. Maybe the senators don't organise themselves effectively enough or garner enough support to act so decisively. Maybe Caesar listens to the various warnings he gets about the Ides and doesn't attend the senatorial meeting. Both are viable, but I think the most interesting point of diversion surrounds Mark Antony. If Antony hadn't been distracted by one of the conspirators and entered the meeting room with Caesar, perhaps just the presence of the battle-hardened Antony would be enough to scare them from striking in the first place. Or maybe he could have stopped the first attacker from dealing a blow to Caesar. So, let's say Antony shrugs off this diversion and walks on through into the meeting with Caesar. As Caesar greets his various colleagues, Antony spots a senator reaching into his toga and a glint of steel as Casca draws his blade. Antony realises what's about to happen and makes a split-second decision. Casca raises the dagger, but Antony grabs him firmly by the wrist. Caesar hears the scuffle behind him and turns around to see the senator caught red-handed. Caesar calls out urgently for guards who run in and secure the room quickly. The plot has been foiled. The full extent of the conspiracy would have been uncovered. Many of the plotters would be put on trial as others would attempt to flee. Caesar may have had a reputation of showing clemency, but I can't imagine even he could pardon such a large group of senators, all armed and prepared to murder him themselves. I think the only one with a chance of getting away with it is Brutus. He wouldn't go unpunished, but he might be able to make it out alive. Alternatively, seeing Brutus attempt to betray him for a second time might tell Caesar all he needs to know and have him punished like the rest. In the coming days, news spreads about the foiled assassination attempt on Caesar's life. Romans let out a collective sigh of relief that their leader has survived, quickly followed by outrage at the plotters. Caesar uses this plot as a pretext to subvert the whole Senate to his will. What little section of the political bureaucracy not already directly controlled by Caesar succumbs to his will. He tightens his control over Rome ever further. So, what would be different in this alternate timeline? First of all, Rome, under the continued leadership of Caesar, would look physically different to how it looked in our timeline. Prior to his assassination, Caesar had begun plans for a wide range of building projects which would remodel the Roman landscape. An enormous new temple to the war god Mars was planned to be constructed under Caesar's orders, 
He'd also planned to build a massive library in the centre of Rome, comparable in size to that of the famous one that he had partially burnt down by accident in Alexandria. He also planned to divert the Tiber River which ran through Rome, to lessen the threat of flooding and provide new land to settle. This alternate timeline sees these projects carried out. They would reshape Rome's landscape and sustain Caesar's popularity with the people. While Rome itself would be affected in a world without Caesar's assassination, there are much more wide-reaching effects. The wars that came as a result of his death in real life would not happen in this alternate timeline, while the Second Triumvirate would not unite against the Liberators to avenge Caesar's death, this doesn't necessarily mean that peace would prevail in this alternate timeline. As I previously mentioned, Caesar had enacted a mass recruitment campaign for the army. This was done in preparation, as just days after his assassination, Caesar was scheduled to embark on a new set of military campaigns. Had he been around to go through with them, it would have made his conquest of Gaul look like a cakewalk. Caesar had been formulating plans on conquering the vast empire of Parthia, modern-day Iran, whose territory spread into Mesopotamia and the Levant region. Caesar had also decided that before he did this, he needed to go to war with the Dacians as well to secure his northern flank. The Dacians were a formidable kingdom in Eastern Europe, based around the Danube River. Ever motivated by his thirst for Gloria, in this alternate timeline where he's not killed, Caesar would embark on these campaigns. Not long after the Ides of March, he would set sail for Roman-occupied Greece and march his legions north and invade Dacia. By my reckoning, Rome would succeed, but the campaign would be terribly costly. This is likely, considering in real life when Dacia was conquered by the Roman Empire some 140 years later, it took two separate military campaigns across 20 years to defeat them. Chances are, Caesar would have had a hard time crushing his enemy, even with his military genius. After pacifying Dacia, Caesar would turn his attention to the east, taking on the Parthians, would be the real challenge. He remembered the gruesome fate that his old ally Crassus had met at the hands of the Parthians and vowed to avenge Rome's defeat at the Battle of Carrhae. Caesar would march across Anatolia and invade Parthia with an army of 100,000 men. Advancing across the lands of modern-day Iraq and Syria, he would slowly push the Parthians back, who would begin to struggle to defend against his legions due to political instability back at home. I think it's likely that Parthia would lose much of its territory as a result of this war, but it would be too far from Rome and too vast a territory to conquer in its entirety. I can imagine the Romans opting to establish a leader in an occupied territory who was friendly to Rome. This would be a huge victory for Caesar. This win wasn't just any old triumph, it would cement his place in history as the greatest conqueror since Alexander the Great. So, let's assume that these two campaigns take, at the very least, a decade, bringing us to the year 34 BC. At this point, Caesar probably would have wanted to push even further, the guy was clearly a megalomaniac, but by this point, he would have been in his mid-60s. According to historical accounts, 
He suffered from numerous seizures throughout his life, which some have attributed to epilepsy. With his health clearly deteriorating, Caesar would recognise that the time had come to assign a successor to his legacy. I think that Octavian, his grandnephew, would still be declared his heir as he had been in real life. In this alternate timeline, Julius Caesar dies in 30-ish BC, having reached his 70s. Octavian would have by this point been groomed for the role as his successor for years now. He would have still picked up the mantle of Caesar Augustus after the death of his great uncle. By association, I think he would have greatly benefited from Caesar's popularity and faces little opposition when coming to power. This orderly transition of power would mean that a less dramatic series of events would ensue. The Republic would not have been swept away as it was in our timeline after years of war following Caesar's death. However, all of the foundational characteristics that made the Roman Republic a Republic would have long since been lost. Overall, after attempting to imagine a world where Caesar survived, I think the Republican model of government was doomed, whether or not the Liberators succeeded in killing him. The Republic had fallen long before the time of Caesar's assassination, when the ambitions of powerful men began to subvert the foundations of its existence for their own personal gain. I think it's fair to say that after Caesar's time in power, Rome was left a Republic in all but name. That's where I'll leave it for today's episode, in which I imagined a world where Julius Caesar was never assassinated. This Is Not History is written, produced and narrated by me, Tom DeLaghi. Be sure to follow on Twitter at NotHistoryPod if you'd like to send ideas for potential episodes and feel free to message me if you disagree with anything I've theorised in this scenario. Thank you very much for listening and I hope to see you in the next episode of This Is Not History.